This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Getting a Magic Gun! Joke Tagging! Shauna Germain! And Conspiracy Theory Theory! As our beloved and sleekly accessorized listeners well know, our heads are full of ideas for games. Uh, Sorry, I can't hear you over all these game ideas. If you are anything like us, you've also got some great ideas for games bubbling in your cranial region. But unlike excruciatingly humble podcast hosting game designers like ourselves, you may not know what to do next. Atlas Games to the rescue. The White Box, created by Atlas Games and Game Playwright, is a game design workshop in a box. It contains a ton of generic components. Like meeples, cubes, dice, tokens, and discs. And includes a 200-page book of 25 essays about game design and publishing. With topics like... Refining your design. Playtesting. Crowdfunding. And how to work a convention. In short, the white box has everything you need to get your game idea out of your head and onto the table. You can get the white box right now everywhere tabletop games are sold. Seriously, I can't even hear you over these game ideas. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the Gaming Hut. And what do we have here on the Gaming Hut? We have, why, Robin, is it a handout? It's a picture, and it shows, oh, look at that, it shows a gun. It's a picture of a gun, but the picture, someone went in with a Photoshop filter, and they made it all glowy and pretty, and maybe it's got a a eldritch green glow running along the the bolt. Oh, goodness, what a gun. What a magic gun. Why, any PC would be happy to be offered such a magic gun, especially when accompanied by such a handout. But, Robin, you're saying, perhaps when the GM offers you a magic gun, it's time to... What? Shoot the GM? Run away? Embrace pacifism? Well, the, the GM is, is very cleverly giving you the, the gun in game space only as a handout and not an actual uh, weapon. Right, yes. Well, that's that's just good GMing, people. Don't bring real guns to the table. It's not a good play. Yes, and, and impermissible at every convention. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, wildly <laughs> impermissible. Except Armadillo Con for some reason. Right. <laughs> Often, in this slot, we give advice to GMs, but uh, I think that in part of our service orientation here on the, on the podcast, we should uh, every so often give advice to players. So uh, the question is, the, the GM has given you a magic gun. Uh, what do you do? What questions do you start asking yourselves? Because... As Ken has described, it is a, a very beautiful gun that you've been given. And it's magic. Yeah, it's magic. Now, first of all, the first question I guess you ask yourself is, is this a big deal in this world, right? So, right. Um, if Am I you, just playing like uh, El Hu Trail, where magic guns are like magic swords, and you get them because you're fifth level now or whatever? Right. It's just a thing. So, uh, so the first question I, I guess you, if there's any um, puzzlement in your mind, uh, you know, find out how unusual is this magic gun? Is this just, you know, a plus one, you know, no big deal, or, you know, it's a blessed weapon. You need this in order to be able to shoot werewolves. But other than that, you know, it, it's a monster killing gun, but really, you know, it's, it just brings you up to the level where you're able to kill monsters. 
it's it's your basic default that you need in order to proceed. So in that case, if you determine that you know the GM is not dropping a massive uh, problatunity in your in your lap, but just giving the, you the tools that you need to do your thing, then you can relax easy, right? It's right. Just, you can just uh, strap it on and go out there and gun down some monsters. Right. So having said that, let's say, for example, uh, as, as happened in my Dreamhounds of uh, Paris series, the gun is, uh, as you suggest, it's a little bigger than usual, and it's silver, and it gleams, and and the person who gave it to you is Nyarlathotep. Yeah. And he's giving you this gun. Yeah. And so, uh, what do you do? Story checks out. Story checks out. Uh, because what player, or rather, what entire player group is going to have every player <laughs> in the group refuse to take the magic gun, uh, from, uh, Nyarlathotep? So, I guess the, the next question then is, who should have this gun? I mean, I guess I've got, I, maybe the question is if he literally shows up with his bloody tentacle flapping out of his face and uh, hordes of hunting whores swirling around his head and Cairo, Egypt is on fire and he's like, hey, you guys look cool. Have a magic gun. Maybe they wouldn't do it. But no, if he's giving you any kind of pretense to avoid. Well, yeah, he's dark complected, but you know, uh, and yes, there are wild animals licking his hands, and yes, his name is N.R. Lithotep, yeah. but you don't know that he's near Lithotep. He's wearing his nice suit. Maybe he's a cosplayer. Yeah, he's being he's being very pleasant to you. He's offering you some fruit, mm-hmm. and the question of whether you eat that, I guess Don't is- take the fruit or the gun. Yeah. <laughs> Shoot the fruit with the gun! Shoot the fruit with the gun, or or the gun with the fruit. You never know, it is the dreamlands. Right. And so, uh, I, the question is, if, if the gun is offered to you, and you turn it down, there's another five player characters in the group. Is everyone right. going to say no? Are you the and one? it may just be that you're like, well, I'll take the gun because I know that another player, who we won't name, but we all know who it is, will take the gun if I don't. Right. So, the question that you want to ask yourself is, uh, you know, am I the person who's destined to have Neuralathotep's gun? Now, if you're thinking, you know, of what is the GM thinking, probably... The gun is being offered to you because it offers a possibility of some sort of transformation, right? That if you, the GM might be just going, oh, well, Dave is the one who always likes to blow stuff up. And this is Dave's moment to have something. He gets a blow stuff up free card. Uh, that might be the case. So it might be an opportunity for you to act in accordance with everything you have set up about your character. Or you might be given an opportunity to show another side of your character. And so you want to ask yourself, do I want to go through with that? Do I want to be the, the one who shoots the magic gun? Or do I want to be the character who disobeys uh, the rules of both Neuralathotep and uh, Chekhov and keep the gun but not shoot it? Am I going to be the mm-hmm. guardian of the gun? Because I know that uh, it's maybe going to lead to success and trouble. Mm-hmm. But let's say for the purposes of, of this that you've done the interesting thing that allows this segment to continue and taken the gun. Right. So can, as a player... What situation are you going to wait for in order to use the gun? Because you know that uh, something big is going to happen when you do it, uh, but it's like having, you know, the biggest pool of pool points ever. You've really got to pick and choose your moment. You're not just going to fire this gun the next time you wind up at, in diathlon and, you know, just randomly fire it at a caravan full of people. That's what Dave would have done. But you're not going to be like Dave. Yeah, and we're better than Dave. So what what is the moment you wait for 
when you know that this is the the the, the time to uh, take that risk and pay the price as well as reap the benefit for having the magic cat. I mean, for, for just as a brief aside here, as a, I know that you're a fan of the TV show Supernatural, as was I when the gun that could kill anything was introduced. Uh, that is sort of a paradigmatic version of the gun. Also, uh, Brian Azzarello's uh, comic, A Hundred Bullets, in which you get magic bullets that if you shoot someone with them, they can't be traced back to you. And so that's a uh, good fun as well. So, it's this knowledge that you have uh, literally a limited number of bullets in your gun that also maybe informs some of it. If the gun is like magically forever reloading, yeah, maybe you do start plinking guys in dilithine just because it, it lasts forever. Nothing can stop me. Uh, but if you're like, well, you have a gun and six bullets or a gun and, you know, 11 bullets because it's just in one magazine, then now you've got to think, mm, is this worth shooting with this magic gun or is right. it not? So we're assuming that there's a limited amount of bullets on our magic gun, right, Robin? Right. And my advice to players is if you're not told how many bullets there are, if the GM is not making that point, right, if the GM says, Neralathotep hands you the gun and he hands you four bullets, uh, that means you're going to sh- get to shoot it four times. And so right. uh, each time you shoot it, you well, can pull be the trigger able- four times. The yeah. fourth time, of course, is when you try and shoot Neralathotep with it and he's like, was I born yesterday? Literally? <laughs> I was born at night, but it was the cosmic night of the universe, not last night. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, yeah. If you're planning to use the fourth one to do something uh, that you know is not going to work, you've only got three. Yeah. But uh, here, here's your tip-off, players. If the jam doesn't specify how many bullets there are, the number of times you're going to get to use the gun is... What? <laughs> and of course, the you know the 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 rule of fiction of, to which magic guns are subject is that uh, you know the second time you do something is never as interesting as the first time. So if there's something that's really only going to be super memorable the first time you do it, that's the number of times you're you're going to get to do it. Right. And so do you use that? So then you have to ask yourself, well, am I being given the gun? in order to take out a particular uh, creature or a big boss that I can't otherwise take out, that it, you know, the storyline has already been justified, that you can't possibly kill this character, and now here's your opportunity to do that. So right. that's sort of, again, the question of when you use the gun has been answered for you, and it's right. just a plot yeah. device. Joseph to, Kerwin is bulletproof, but not against the Anathotep gun. He's not bulletproof. Yes. And so that's just, uh, again... A, a justification to uh, counteract something that's already been established in the in the storyline. But you know, if you have freedom of choice as to when to, to to use the gun, then you have to decide. Well, I basically probably the gun is a I get to uh, radically upend everything sort of situation, and I get one win, and the one win probably, given who's given me this gun, has other consequences that I might not like. So, uh, again, you know, do you use this the first time you get an itchy trigger finger and therefore probably satisfy the expectations of the GM? Or do you ignore everything you know about fiction and tropes and and consider that metagaming and uh, take nothing into account other than the psychology of your character and when they would want to use that gun? Uh, My advice always is to keep in mind all of the meta stuff, but never vocalize it because as soon as you vocalize your narrative expectations, the GM is then obligated to To change them them on you. So yeah, GMs are basically Heisenbergian principles. You can either know what they're doing or know where they are, but you can't know both. Right. I I think that if I've got the gun, 
um, and you or an equivalent GM are GMing, then I am going to use the gun when the dramatic consequences of getting what I want or mostly what I want or at least what I want plus something I can handle are so irresistible as to make the GM play into them. So I'm not going to be fool enough to try and shoot near Lathotep. I know that's not going to work. I may not shoot Joseph Kerwin with it because it's like, that's what near Lathotep expects me to do. So Robin, the GM has a plan that when I shoot uh, Joseph Kerwin with it, it merely allows Neil Lathotep to possess his body. And now we have an immortal necromancer who's also near Lathotep. Great job, everybody. But, Maybe Robin has also introduced this horrendous, uh, gibbering, um, uh, fox entity that everyone loves so very much. And so by shooting the fox entity with an orthotep gun, I give Robin the opportunity to maybe remove something that took over the game by accident. I give Robin the opportunity to come up with something really cool that happens when the neurothotep gun meets the fox spirit. And I also get my shooting something out of the game that we are all being plagued by Yaya's out with a minimum of backlash. Sure. Maybe my arm turns into a Fox paw or something awful, but that's the sort of, you know, consequence that you sort of sign up for when you're like, yeah, I think it's a great idea to go to the dream world and uh, eat fruit with your lots of tap. That doesn't trigger me at all. No pun intended. And another thing that you can do to uh, sort of get the GM to uh, tip her hand a little bit more is to gather more information on the magic gun. So mm-hmm. you've got the gun, and the first thing you do with it is you don't shoot it, but you uh, take it to your uh, local consulting occultist and learn more of the rules concerning the gun. And so the first thing the consulting occultist tells you is that, well, yeah, you can't. If you use this to shoot in your lathotap, uh, here's the part that'll open up and the gun, will, the bullet will come backwards and kill you. So, and that, And that's just... You know, he's just telling you what you kind of already know, but right. you need somebody to tell you. It's like when you go to the doctor and he says, get some exercise. You're like, yeah, all right. I figured that part out already. Right. But having given you the obvious fact that GM is then going to be somewhat obligated to give you another interesting, surprising fact. And so it could be that, oh, well, you know, this gun doesn't just kill the person that you uh, shoot it at. It's going to continue to ricochet and kill everyone else in the room and uh, one of your loved ones whether your loved one is in that room or on the other side of the world. And so you'd then, oh, okay, well, that's, uh, well, let's figure out a way to protect my loved ones. Or it could be that, oh, well, this gun is not just going to kill uh, the person you shoot it at or the entity you shoot it at, um, as long as they're sort of, you know, sub-deity level, but it's going to kill every version of them in every alternate reality as well. Right, it'll it'll kill their, their concept. Right. And so uh, you can sort of, give the GM an opportunity to flesh out the mythology a bit more and give you more sort of rules to to work with. And so that way, when you hear, oh, well, obviously, Neolathotep intends me to use this to kill Joseph Kerwin. What is another way that I can deal with Joseph Kerwin and counter him without killing him with a bullet? And that way, I've still got the magic gun for something that I want to do. Because guess what? If Neolathotep wants you to do it, it's not your agenda. It's it's Neralathotep's, and and you know what that is. Mm-hmm. It's 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 chaos and the crawling kind, not the fun kind. Yes. Um, yeah. 
the 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 other thing once you've researched it um and you, it might also be a matter of you know taking it down to the alchemy lab to look at the metal or or get, going through the legendary provenance of the gun etc 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 any number of ways uh rather than going up some creakety stairs with a gun that might go off at any minute other things that you can do with the gun include um brandish it you, you, you merely possessing the gun and expressing a willingness to possibly use it can maybe get results. And so you're at a you're at a sit down with with Joseph Kerwin and he's like, ha ha ha, I have uh, all the power. There's nothing you can do. And you put the gun on the table and you're like, excuse me, I need to, you know, um, uh, eat a burrito. Uh, I hope my hands don't get too greasy to hold that gun, Joseph Kerwin. And then maybe he backs down a little bit because he's like, oh, crap, Neurothotep is in the play. Now I have to go back and refigure my plan. And that. Actually, you may be able to set Joseph Kerwin at Nirlathotep and sort of give yourself a little breathing room by using the gun as a symbol or a earnest, even if you don't pull the trigger and use it for its intended purpose. The gun, especially if it's big and magic and significant, can do more than merely shoot somebody. Another thing you can do with uh, to throw your jam for a loop is say, okay, I've got the magic gun. Where's a gunsmith I can trust? Mm-hmm. You go to gunsmith and you go, can you make me a replica of this magic gun? And so that you've got a real one and you've got a fake one. Every GM in the world worth their salt is like, oh, yeah, absolutely, yes. <laughs> yes. By an odd coincidence, he has exactly the same meteoric iron that that gun is made of right in stock. Or he knows where he can get it. You just have to kill some werewolves. But, no, it's super easy. He's just, like, right down on Locust Avenue. And you just bring me the meteoric iron. Absolutely. You can have a perfect and distinguishable duplicate of the Neolithotep gun. You can have three if you want. Oh, that's giving my hand away. No, no, just one. That's all you need. Oh, no, that's so perfect. Such yeah. an opportunity. Right. Um, and so in the meantime, you go, well, you know, now I've got the, the counterfeit magic gun and, uh, you know, we've even got something that, uh, you know, in a cursory astral examination will register as, as the magic gun. And then you can have, you know, let's, let's go off and, uh, see what we can trade. The we magic made it gun. out of this cool knife that has a demon in it. We've yeah. found. <laughs> yes. Uh, call back to a previous episode there. Um, so whatever way that you come up with to add another complication, and uh, throw the GM for a loop. Of course, the GM is that's that's Apple for the teacher. But right. you know, GMs like it when they do that, and uh, that might lead to sort of uh, some interesting fun or a because uh, of course there's the other thing that you have to you know if you get a magic gun, security uh, measures are in order, right? Uh, because uh, you know the the elves uh, might uh, take some interest in the fact that you've got the gun of Neralathotep, and you don't want to wake up one morning. And the actual real gun of Nyarlathotep is now a bundle of sticks tied together with twine, because right. then that means you've got to do another episode uh, where you're going down and uh, and tracking down the elves who have stolen your gun. But of course, if the gem wants that to happen the elves are going to steal your gun and you have to go uh, deal with them. Or maybe the GM just wants to impress on you the importance of gun security and gun exactly, safety. That's yes. a good lesson for all the kids. Yeah, it's, it's all a PSA. Right. <laughs> Well, speaking of commercial messages, it's time for us to head through this commercial message, uh, having carefully stowed our uh, magical gun, which we have not fired. Keeping not, our fingers out of the trigger guard. caused a massive slaughter with the uh, floods of uh, gore everywhere. We've been very careful. Uh, maybe we'll save the gun and maybe we'll shoot it off uh, at the uh, at the very uh, last segment. But, but if not, you'll know the elves took it.
In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touch the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrain Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? The chutter of keys in the IBM Selectric, the gurgle of mid-priced bourbon into the jelly jar glass, tell us that we are once more walking up crackling our knuckles, sitting down at the desk, and learning how to write good. And today, Robin, you have a specific, what do I want to say? Is it a beef or a peeve? Um, I, it started as, as, as a beef and a peeve. Uh, so right. uh, this could have been a segment called Robin Shouts Into the Wind. Mm-hmm. That would be a good segment. It would be a good segment. That might still happen. Can and or Robin <laughs> shout into the wind. Uh, you might go back, <laughs> listeners, and find other segments which are covertly. It could have been tagged that way. Exactly. Beginning with yes. how to build a damn sandwich. Um, but, you know, we're all. Exactly. There you go. Um, but we're all about the service here here in Ken and Robin. So rather than sure uh, tell you what not to do, our uh, activism here is about uh, showing you what the uh, the preferred course of action is. And so we're talking about how to tag jokes on the Internet. So in its previous edition in my head, in, which was Robin's Shouts Into the Wind, this segment was called Nerds Can't Tag Jokes. But <laughs> at the end of this, beloved listeners, perhaps you will have some of the techniques you need if you wish to take part in badinage on the Internet. So... We all look at social media. We all see people commenting on Facebook and uh, responding with uh, reply tweets on, on Twitter and uh, even on the Instagrams. And perhaps you, too, have seen that not everybody is really great at participating in a running gag. And so here's uh, some a series of tips on how to do it well. And the basic uh, Uber tip behind everything is that just like improv comedy... You're engaging in an act of improv comedy by typing your little joke answer to something. And so, uh, the, oh, actually, that's, that's item two. Allow me to backtrack as I, which, which can <laughs> no, happen. No, there is no time. I will sum up. Yeah. When, when you see, that's what not to do. Don't just throw in a reference to something that everyone already loves merely to prove that you two have seen Princess Bride. Exactly. Exactly. Or if you're going to do it, do it in a gift. But that's point three. Right. Let's move back to point one. Point one we? <laughs> is uh, when you see a joke on the Internet, uh, and I realize this is difficult, attempt to identify whether or not it is, in fact, a joke. Uh, because the first thing, uh, the problem is, even beyond tagging jokes, 
uh, sometimes, and I'm sure Ken, this, this will be unfamiliar to you. Uh, and it's, you know, maybe it's only happened to be once or 13,000 times. Uh, people will seriously argue with a joke. Yeah. Right. That's, that's yeah. the best. So, identify whether something is a joke and then calibrate your response to its jokiness. Uh, so if you feel that you want to argue with the premise of a joke seriously, uh, the problem there is, A, no one wants you to do that. <laughs> and and B, <laughs> the joke has probably been written, uh, if it is a good joke, in a way where the comic timing works. And one thing that does not assist the construction of a joke is all of the series of qualifiers and little footnotey things that you would right. make the asterisks in a serious comment that you're uh, putting forth as a matter of uh, debate. So uh, the first step is find out if it's a joke. And if you need to respond to it, respond to it with the knowledge that it is a joke. Also, uh, if your response is just, this reminds me of a thing that I always say, this is my opportunity to say that thing. I always say again, Ken, what, what, what do you guess my advice is here? <laughs> don't say it. D- don't say it. Yeah. Be actually on point, not within, you know, a hundred meters of the point, because right. that is not going to be funny. That is just going to be a sidetrack. And that brings me back to where I was headed, which is the secret of comedy, folks, is yes and. So a successful tag that is also funny in response to something that was funny to begin with takes the premise that you're given and builds on it. Now, the reason uh, this started out being nerds can't take jokes is that often the nerdy impulse is to dispute something, even jokingly. So if the premise of the joke is, you know, I really, you know, this is not a funny joke because I'm making it off the top of my head, but let's say that it's about, I don't know what I did to annoy all of these trees, but I shouldn't have done it during allergy season. Right. Not hilarious. It's not terrible. Not terrible, but there you go. So if your response is to say, well, actually, it's not trees, it's aliens, even if what you then say is funny, you've negated the premise of the joke and therefore made it not funny. So you have to accept the premise and find some way to build on what has been established by the original joke writer in order to add another joke that is just as funny. Uh, and a lot of people will start off at an attempted joke tag with no or not really or, you know, that the, I want to switch the premise to my premise. That is never funny. That is never going to work. Uh, allow that to play out in your head as uh, and possibly if it inspires you to a really funny joke about uh, aliens and allergies or whatever it is, just write that joke down and make it its own separate thing that you are starting that then other people can fail to tag and not be funny on. Rather than right. failing to be funny in response, spread to the spread the burden. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that the uh, notion of yes and as as part of the joke contributes something, as opposed to merely reshare the fact that uh, yep, uh, Big Trouble in Little China was a darn good movie, um, which is it, true. And feel free to share that observation independently. Or even worse, I don't know what everybody had in mind about Big Trouble in Little China. I never liked it, which I guess... Yeah, well, that's a whole different thing. That's a whole thing. different thing, I mean, which you've already discussed. We got all, they, they, we, we're opening a whole different rant box now. Right. Um, I think that uh, James Ernest and I, every now and again, uh, with uh, Young Will March discuss doing a... Uh, I forget what, what the... We've called it joke autopsy before. <laughs> uh, 
but or um, uh, the Joken Doctor Jokenstein, but it's the notion of you take a basic joke that everyone knows, and then over the iterations, as anyone who's been around uh, James and I and alcohol at Origins uh, knows, the the jokes they become uh, beautiful sculptures of jokes. Uh, by the time we're done, and uh, they've, they've been sort of evolutionarily, the Darwinian pressure uh, forces them into their most jokeness, uh, their 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 jokest uh, aspect. And the notion of constructing a joke is actually something that you can profitably do in your own free time. You can look at books of humor from, say, I don't know, not even 1950. You can look at books of humor from two decades ago, and say. Why is that not funny, and why did that presumably kill back in the day? I've, I've been going through a bunch of Robert W. Chambers references uh, for part of a thing that I'm doing, and hopefully have done by the time this airs. And one of the things that his, I guess his agent did, was they would place him in newspapers as, while lunching at the Century Club, Robert W. Chambers, popular novelist, author of Insert Title Here, observed something not particularly funny. But at the <laughs> time, like it was funny enough. funny things in his... Uh, humorous novels. Exactly. But, it, but much of it, I believe, may be situational and environmental in that some things were funnier at certain times. I mean, not all the jokes in Shakespeare work now. That's just because it's not the 1590s. Although, remember the 1590s, how great that was? All the flannel uh, among the yeah, groundlings. Like it was yesterday. And all those uh, iambic pentameter dick jokes. Oh, oh, the exactly. day. Oh, the day. Oh, the day. And so the notion of looking at what works now versus what works then, looking at how a joke can evolve from one form to another, is actually kind of educational, A, for people who want to sort of put themselves in a historical mindset, B, people who want to write things set in a historical past, and C, just people who want to get more jokes than the ones that are going on literally right now. Yes. Uh, I think that that's just good use And, and I can hear Shakespeare going, at least they weren't all pop culture jokes. That's right. They weren't just endless references to, th- well, actually a lot of them were endless references to current events. I saw I saw a, a version of Merchant of Venice called Merchant on Venice that set it in Venice, California, and was a lot of riffs on other Shakespeare plays and pop culture and right. Bollywood movies and well, things like that. That's what Shakespeare would have had, had to songs. do. He, he was he was inventing pop culture, so he would have to just been self-referential. Well, he he, he was he was self-referential, and he would re- reference politics and stuff that everyone got at the time. And so, I mean, we don't know who Malvolio was meant to be, but it was someone funny back in the day. Other things to avoid are uh, a joke tag that is a dig at the original Joker. That's uncharitable. Uh, that if the original joke is somewhat uh, aggressive and uh, you can take the role of someone who is uh, zinging back. That works. But there are a subset of uh, failed joke taggers who think that just sort of being sort of mean and snide is inherently funny. Uh, so don't attack the joker, uh, but again, build on what they're doing so that you're accepting their premise and you're joking with them uh, rather than trying to... Uh, you know, uh, poke them with a, with a sharp stick. Like when I celebrate that Kevin Culp will have his throat torn out for not liking Chicago pizza, that's a friendly riff. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and you can, you know, build on that, uh, as, uh, and because there's an element of, of aggression in that, you know, that someone could come back at you, uh, with, uh, some other, uh, animal, uh, body portion and food, you know, do a, a variant on that. But if it's a perfectly sweet and innocent joke without that level, of, uh, uh, 
violent body horror imagery. Uh, <laughs> it's you not know. really horror if it happens to Kevin, is it? That's just, <laughs> See, there it's you just go. charming. Yes. So uh, Kevin would then be empowered to come back at you because you've introduced that uh, that aggression in, into the arena. But if you're the joke tagger, you're not trying to... Yeah, don't escalate to tearing Kevin's throat yeah. out necessarily. Yes. You're not playing the nines unless you're uh, unless the nines are already in progress. You, you can't turn it into that. And one of the worst crimes that you commit as an as an attempted joke tagger is to jokingly reference the hack joke that you're not making because you're making the joke right you're just putting a ribbon on the fact that your funny response isn't actually funny that doesn't make it any better to then make a joke of the fact that your tag is bad instead uh, uh make a good tag or you know just sit back in the privacy of your own home and, and imagine yourself having made the good tag that you haven't thought of. And another thing is that uh, a spirit of camaraderie uh, depends on how well people know each other. So that if you're zinging Kevin Culp, that's, uh, you know, friendly badinage, whereas somebody coming out of nowhere to uh, uh, be aggressive towards someone who's just making a joke uh, isn't funny. It's mean, which is a, a matter of of context. Yeah. Um, be aware of context is, I guess, the good meta rule of all of this. Yeah. Um, uh, starting with... Starting with, is it a joke? <laughs> How do I respond accordingly to, you know, the fine points of, you know, uh, does this person know you well enough to, uh, accept a zing or, uh, even a, you know, a well-meaning but sort of failed joke or, uh, you know, again, if you think of something that's kind of funny but doesn't work in this context, uh, workshop a little, yeah. move it around. You know, I, I have some jokes sitting in a, a Google Docs file, which, uh, you know, if they're really great, they can live on their own. The um, the notion of, I guess, sort of tangent to all of this is the notion that if in your estimation, the construct looks like it was intended to be a joke, but it's something that maybe is based on a reprehensible premise. I think that maybe your first response can be, I'm not saying should be, but I'm saying can be, mute that person out of your timeline. Then that problem is solved because you don't have to deal with it. If you feel like starting a giant war over a joke, that's maybe a different question. Uh, like, is anything worth your time? But uh, to begin with, you're not obliged to engage with everything you see on the internet in the first place. And if it's something that you're like, well, I, you know, don't believe that that thing is a cool thing. You don't have to see it. You're the, you're in control. Yeah. So if you're getting angry at a joke, you can never look good doing that. <laughs> yeah, there's there is no good place right. that you stand if, you doing know, that. A- anger has its place on the internet, and again, maybe you can reconfigure that thought to, so that it's not a response to a particular joke. Um, even a really terrible, crummy, you know, sort of uh, nasty and even sort of uh, corrosive joke is very hard to to rebut in that way. And uh, but yeah. I think now we're moving more into an even bigger. Uh, perhaps even beyond the purview of this podcast uh, subset of life advice as to how not yeah. to get, uh, how to only have productive flame wars on the internet. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that, that seems like that's a different question. That's not even, that, that's not even how to write good, except in how to avoid I, I writing good. I think that's back into Ken and Robin shout into the wind. So <laughs> yes. rather than turn into that, uh, let's, uh, let's see what's on the other side of this commercial.
Hey, Ken, what happens when you add a hefty dollop of Babylon to your urban fantasy? What doesn't happen? Babylon is the template on which... That sounds fa- fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Shield this podcast from Magic Gunfire by joining such Patreon backers as... Ryan Leibarger. Timothy Corum. Tony Kemp. Patrick Joint. And Adam Grotjan. It's time once again for Ken and or Robin talk to someone else. And today, Ken and Robin are talking to someone else. Shauna Germain, the uh, mighty fuse and thrumming brain behind Money Cook Games, <laughs> uh, has joined us in our hotel room the day before Gen Con, which is why the ambiance may sound a little odd and why we do not yet sound dead. <laughs> Uh, Shauna, welcome to hey. the show. Uh, thanks for coming uh, to talk to us about stuff. Monty Cook Games, of course, has a million things on the boil all the time. Among them, New and Air, I guess, is sort of the, the, the big driver, the big engine. Yeah, and Cypher System. And Cypher System writ large. Yes. But New and Air is the big dog in that kennel, right? So far, yeah. yeah. Obviously, Predation, which at this <laughs> writing is up for an any. Yeah. And we all cross our fingers and hope that it will crush those who are before it, unless, of course, I'm in the category. <laughs> which gives me hope for silver. But you can look it up and find out if, if Shauna won. Plus, obviously, uh, No Thank You Evil, which is the game that you have won an Origins Award for. Yeah. And is a game for parents to play with their younger kids. Not even, like, 11-year-olds, like dirty, rotten monsters <laughs> like Robin and I were when we got into D&D, but, like, actual, charming, delightful children. Um, sure. <laughs> and, you got, and you got two products up for that, yeah. also for Ennies. So that was the portrait of someone who is super freaking busy. Uh, what of that panoply of activities do you want to, are you excited about coming out that oh, you've got well, coming on? Uh, so I'm, right now I am working on some more stuff for No Thank You Evil, which is always fun because it's all puns and, and, and just these crazy riddles and your brain starts sounding like Dr. Seuss after a little while, which is really fun to write. And as we speak, we're in the middle of a Kickstarter for an as unyet named stretch goal that I'm hoping that we hit that I'm super excited about but can't talk about. But it's very me is what I will say. All right. <laughs> and uh, by the time this airs, we will yes. have already spoken of that and people will know what you meant and they'll be slapping <laughs> and- their heads and saying... Of course. <laughs> yes. But at the time this drops, you are in the middle of wonderful things for Numenera. 
uh, for, for Cypher System. For Cypher System, yes. such as. Um, so we were working on a, a book called Your Best Game Ever, which is Monty and the whole Monty Cook Games crew, plus this fantastic group of consulting experts who um, talk about how to have your best game. So, you know, how to deal with character death, how to deal with horrible players, how to be a great GM, how to game online, like all this kind of stuff. And then we're also doing a revised Cypher System rulebook because players came back and said, here are all the things we love, but here are things that we struggle with. And so we took a really close look at those and decided to make some changes uh, to that book. And then we also have something called Stars Are Fire, which is a sci-fi book. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, there are more books down the line, we hope. Oh, we all hope. Darcy Ross alone is so excited whenever a new book comes out for uh, the Cypher system (laughs) that we all just want that to happen, much less the lovely lovely books. And then also, in addition to Cypher system, which, while elegant and sleek and full of very cool, high-concept settings, is still... Fairly like a role playing game as we have, as Saint Dave gave unto us back in the, in yeah. the before time. Also, Invisible Sun, which is a big box of insanity. It is, yes. And that is, as we speak, slowly trickling out into our mundane human reality. Yes. Uh, what? Is there more boxes inside the box? <laughs> a hand are. with seven fingers? The box Hexagonal weighs, cards? The box what? weighs 30 pounds, which is uh, sort of insane yes, in itself. You, you, um, you've nearly broken some of your employees I know, with it. I know it. Um, so, And then we're working on supplements for that right now. Uh, book M, which is the first supplement, which is very magic-focused, uh, is at the printers and should be coming to us soon. It's full of cards. It's got this beautiful slipcase to hold all your future books. Mm. And Secrets of Silent Streets is the next one, which Monty's working on, and it's all about uh, the city of Saturnine, which is the main city in Invisible Sun. And then we've got, I think, the Kickstarter launched four, three more books after that. So we're busy. Now, <laughs> Invisible Sun, and, and this is not a knock by any stretch of the imagination, but it seems very much like something that was born deep in the recesses of Monty and came out. And then everyone <laughs> sort of looks at it and says, well, that's that's Monty's id, all right. Yeah. Is, is that right. a challenge? I mean, obviously, you know Monty probably better than most people, but as a designer, is that a challenge to sort of get into that sort of very personal mythology space? Or is it because the setting is so surreal and open and strange that, oh, look at that, Shannonsville is just right around the corner <laughs> from uh, Saturnine. Is, is it a, how does that work? That's a really great question. Um, I think that in the beginning, it was really hard for us to enter the Monty space because he, he, this is a thing that he's clearly had in his brain a long time. Surreality mm-hmm. and magic and, you know, just sort of, turning the world on its axis in a really cool and weird way, plus, you know, tarot elements. And so in the beginning, I think we were all sort of like, this sounds great. We don't know how to, what it is yet. And in that sense, you're sort of ambassadors for the players and the GMs because uh, this does not rely on conventional stereotypes. Right. You can't say, oh, it's it's like this movie and that TV show and you play a ninja. Right. You, so you have to sort of be the first ambassadors to translate that into sort of little mini pitches that tell people what the world is, who they play, and what they do. That is really true. And the art helped a ton. We had some fantastic artists who really captured, you know, you start looking at surreality and it's all bendy clocks. And we wanted to step really far away from that and, mm-hmm. and to just push the idea of what visual surreality could look like. And so we started playtesting. So we've been playtesting for about two and a half years now. And that really helps get into that world. And then the great thing about, I think, Monty Cook Games is we say, here's your, here's where you start. 
okay, other designers, bring your sensibility to this cool setting. And so I've been working on, um, I, I worked a little bit on Book M and was able to bring sort of my hidden secret cool elements to the space. And this and the world is big enough that those all fit. Yeah. And that's really nice. And, and so how would you describe your sensibility in how it then informs the broader world and setting. Well, one of the cool things, like I started as a poet before I became a fiction writer, and so poetry is is ingrained in Invisible Sun. It's a very poetic set, setting, and so I was able to help Monty kind of create the poetry right out of the gate through editing and working with him and stuff, and so being able to turn that, like I created a whole NPC that, whose entire write-up is this poem that they speak, and so I was able to bring this sort of next level of poetry and, and my surreality is, um, has a little bit of sexuality to it. It's a little bit lighter than Monty's. Monty's tends to be very dark. Um, and so I think we were able to bring a, a, a sort of another side to that. Um, and then later in the year, some other members of the team will be working on it. So it'll be interesting to see what they bring to the future books. So as well. are you drawing on the capital S surrealist poetry of Breton and? Um, not and... so much. I think that. Drawing t- one of the things about Invisible Sun is drawing too closely from one source isn't really how it works. It's really that you take your magpie and so you take 12 things from 12 different sources and smoosh them together, which is kind of how I love to write. And so I was able to bring my own poetry background and surreality and magic and a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit of, of performance in general and, and kind of push those all together and see what came out of it. So the journey from poetry to game design is unconventional. Most poets just stay in the poetry game because that's where the money is. Right. Yeah. You can sell a chapbook for $11 and you can sell four of them. Right. So, uh, and that's not nothing. So how, how did you receive the call and, and follow up on it? Uh, so I started as a poet and then became a fiction writer and then became a game designer, which I think is maybe a little bit more traditional. Um, but for me, the real, the real hard part I had was the first adventure that I wrote I wrote it like a book, and so you didn't get the information till the very end. And Monty was actually my my developer at the time, and he said, "That's not how how adventures work. You run adventures." And I was like, "Yeah, but that's not a good story." Um, and so for me to learn how to give the GM the information that they needed when they needed it, right. as opposed to sort of stringing my reader along, was the biggest step I think for for game design. Right. It can be a big adjustment to think I'm not actually writing the story. I'm giving the tools yes. for somebody else to make the story, and maybe I'll hear back on the internet. How that's right, but I may never know. I think also that there's plot is the hardest part for me about fiction, and so game design doesn't require me most of the time to do a plot, which is fantastic. I can just immerse myself into this setting and these characters, which is really what I love about writing. So it sort of is all all the best of the worlds that I love, while allowing me to step aside the thing that I'm not very good at. Ah, the players will just do something dumb. Right. Yeah, make the yeah. I mean, I'm putting all the onus on the players. They'll in the probably gym. touch it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, in addition to uh, creating enigmatic black boxes, a way that Monty Cook Games is innovating is by uh, being really early into the streaming space. Mm. And uh, a lot of us of our generation are looking at that and going, "I don't know what this you are." Whereas you've actually all jumped in and, and are doing it. And so I've seen your your head in a little uh, frame in a game. So how does it? Uh, how would you describe the experience of uh, adjusting to playing a game, but also as performance for others? 
Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. And for me, there's two parts of that. The first is we did a lot of that. I don't know what's happening. And then we we sort of invested some time and energy into researching. Like we got Darcy Ross to go out into the world and be like, how do you do this? What do you do? Uh, and we looked at lots and lots of other online plays to see kind of what we could learn. And so there was a whole learning curve for us to jump in with both feet. There aren't a lot of game companies out there who are doing their own products. And so that was innovative, but it was also a little scary because if nobody likes it or watches it, you're you're making a huge time commitment for nothing. And you can't blame someone else. No, <laughs> no. Well, that was the problem. The GM the didn't world. understand this. Oh, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, and you don't, you know, you don't want to proselytize your own work while you're doing a game. You just want people to enjoy the game. So it's a really co- sort of complicated space. There's a second part of that for me as a player, which is that I'm a very quiet in my head player. I like, I have all these things going on during the game, but I'm not, I don't, I, I don't shine at the table. That's not my strength. And so learning how to shine and be interesting and engaging as much as possible when really I just want to sit there and like tell stories in my head and watch everybody else do things was a personal hurdle uh, and, and one that I'm still very much learning is how do I how do be, I become an engaging player when everything going on is internal right because you're not just you're playing a character in the game but you are also playing a person who's more of a performer For than you would normally yes. choose to be. Yes, absolutely. And that was a that was a so it was sort of this double learning curve, one for the team and one for me as a personal player. So uh, in closing, you I, I think you're at a secret summit this year, like many of us are, are doing now. Uh, without dropping any top secret hints, uh, what should people expect from uh, Monty Cook Games by next Gen Con? Uh, by next Gen Con, I'm sure we will have another Kickstarter because Kickstarter is our business model. We tend to do two a year. Uh, we will also have Your Best Game Ever will be out, which is the book I talked about a little earlier. The new Cypher System book will be out. Uh, we'll have additional Numenera and additional Invisible Sun stuff, as well as some No Thank You Evil things, and probably me napping by next gen. <laughs> At some point, Shauna will nap. <laughs> yes, you heard it here first. We're kickstart yes. Shauna's yes. nap. Yeah. Yes. Stretch goal. Stretch goal. A more, 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 nap. more napping. Yes. More, more deeper napping. Shauna will stretch while napping. Yeah. Oh, yeah. so Someone sleepy. can bring me back yeah. breakfast in bed. If, if she wakes up, we'll get some freelancers who do short, inspirational napping pieces. And, sort of and remember, right. folks, this is before Gen Con. So uh, Robin and I will be scraping Shauna up off the street, I yes. think, on Sunday. This is true. Um, uh, so we, we, if you uh, if you see... Uh, any game designer at any point before, during, or after Gen Con, don't make any sudden moves. <laughs> They're already hallucinating from lack of sleep, apparently. That's our... <laughs> and, and for our listeners who are conscious at this point, where do they find you? Um, they find me at montecookgames.com. We also have a huge Twitter presence. They can also find me at shaunagermain.com for my personal writing, which I still do a little bit of between naps. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Thanks for, for coming me. on. Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set 
has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agent's Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the Game Moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and sourcebooks. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? The corkboard up on the wall with all of the many disparate photos and clippings uh, connected uh, carefully with a web of... Uh, Red yarn, sometimes there's some green yarn, uh, that means uh, there's an uh, an ally relationship as opposed to the red yarn, which means danger. There's some yellow yarn, that just means I ran out of red and yellow yarn. But the important thing is that this corkboard is installed in the conspiracy corner. Uh, this is the uh, segment where we talk about conspiracy and conspiracy theories, and this time, at the behest of Patreon backer Kevin Nault, we're going to talk about conspiracy theory theory. Kevin's question goes like this. On a recent episode, Ken talked about the national character of conspiracy theories, and I'd like to hear more about conspiracy theory theory. What other characteristics do national origin, political leaning, religion, favorite color, and or taste for anise impart to resulting oddities? Well, if your taste for anise is too much, you are drinking absinthe and you are believing that Paul Verlaine is plotting to kill you which may or may not be true. I don't know. I don't know what you've done to Paul Verlaine. Paul Verlaine was mostly plotting to kill himself, but uh, that's another yeah. story. Well, that's what he was acting to do. We don't yes. know what he was plotting to do, uh, because uh, unlike um, uh, Rombo, we aren't pounding absinthe all the damn time. Um, I guess uh, I should begin by saying that conspiracy theories generally have more in common than not, just because I think that they proceed from a standard behavior of human evolution of pattern matching and finding threat because that is what we literally evolved to do for millions and millions and millions of years and not to be an evo psych guy but it seems like those connections if you're not out there on the savannah hunting for monkey they're going to keep working for you or against you as it might yeah, be you don't have to be uh it's not a weird theory to say that humans are primed to look for danger right and for patterns which is the yeah. other half. Of and, it. and dangerous patterns are the worst, is the forms worst of, both of danger all and patterns. Right. And, but I should also preface this by saying that I, although I, I, I can read German and have read German, I am mostly a monolingual uh, conspiratologist. So when I talk about national conspiracy theories, I am talking necessarily about the ones that have been translated into English or that appear in English or that uh, Google Translate can capture because they're a blog post, not a whole thick tome. So to some extent, the conspiracy theories that I have send from uh, our foreign friends across the sea are also the sorts of things that English speakers find interesting. So there is going to be a meta level of data gathering that uh, falls down. Uh, all conspiracy theories by and large come either from uh, fear of the outside or uh, fear of the inside or just come from being an idiot. And idiocy is, is like uh, pattern matching, pretty universal. But you're either worried that weird foreigners are out trying to get you or you're worried that weird uh, people in your own country, indistinguished from regular folk, 
are trying to get you. And that's sort of the... And are secretly the, foreigners of some kind. And often are secretly foreigners because there's no uh, hard and fast walls in conspiracy theory. And that leads me to my other point is that regardless of your conspiracy theory or even the number of Jews in your home country, virtually all conspiracy theories are drawn as if by magnets to anti-Semitism. So you may start out thinking, yoit, 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 I'm just having fun with reptoid aliens. And sure enough, you turn the corner and the reptoid aliens are plotting 9-11 and the reptoid aliens are controlling national banks and the reptoid aliens are sacrificing Christian babies. And you're like, I think I saw this one before when the reptoid aliens were called Jews. What's going on here, David Icky? And um, uh, it, what's going on is that he's a soccer commentator, for God's sake. He's a simpleton. But that is a an, another very standard element of it. Now, I will say in terms of national origin, to get to sort of the original question uh, from Kevin, certainly the anti-Semitic component of conspiracy theories is louder and prouder in Russia, Germany, and the Middle East than it is currently I, I emphasize in Britain <laughs> and week. France yes. and, and other parts of the, of, of the world. And even in the United States, even the United States anti-Semitism at its worst was always, there was always someone else doing it louder and more. Um, we are, we're still, thank God, the Cleveland Browns of anti-Semitism, uh, worldwide. And, and the, the sort of the immediate snap to of, uh, Jewish aliens as the bad thing is a, uh, quality that, uh, that, that seems, uh, nationally, uh, uh, signified. I don't know if the French burned it all out of themselves, uh, with the Dreyfus affair or if it just doesn't appeal to what I think of as the sort of French national conspiracy characteristic is a certain, I don't say delicacy, but I will, I will say intricacy. The French, I don't think are happy believing in something if there isn't a bureaucracy in charge of it. And so the French conspiracy theories by and large tend to believe in dynasties and constructions and ornate structures and whether those ornate structures are on the other side of the world in Agartha or are right under our feet as the Rosicrucians doesn't seem to matter. They just want to know that someone is taking minutes in the conspiracy and that makes them happy in their Gallic soul. And again, that trend runs like all the way back to the 1660s, uh, 1630s when people were believing that the Rosicrucians were everywhere. And it runs down to uh, even now where the, the, the French have uh, beliefs in a very sort of, uh, a minuted, uh, version of, uh, the, uh, ongoing campaign to subsume La Civilatrice. And the Americans, and to a lesser extent the British, and I think the Japanese as well, although my knowledge of Japanese conspiracy is very superficial, tend to have these, what I, back in the 90s, what we all, I think, thought of as sort of the happy conspiracy theory, which is that there was a, uh, there, there were secret outsiders, but they were mostly sort of cool. And the conspiracy was our jerk government wasn't telling us about it, that they were conspiring with the Smithsonian Institution to cover up the giants in the canyon, or they were conspiring with the uh, uh, Orthodox historians to say that we weren't really descended from the 10 tribes of Israel, or they were conspiring to hide the aliens, or they were conspiring to disguise the fact that uh, Jesus lived in Hokkaido, whatever it happens to be. There was something cool and fun and awesome that happened outside our our experience that the government was keeping from us. And that seems to be more of a common thing of 
uh, the, the, I guess, I don't know if you call it the literal powers, cause I don't know if the Portuguese have the same tendency, but I, I, it does seem to be a common factor in American, British, and Japanese conspiracies. Japanese, by and large, seem to like sort of ancient history and high mysticism. They're like, uh, they like Atlantis and, and their own versions of Atlantis. They like, um, uh, that stuff. But I don't know, again, to what extent that's because my knowledge of Japanese conspiracy filters through English speakers who are looking for the sort of fun anime parts of Japanese conspiracy theory. Certainly, Japanese also had a, a thriving business in anti-Semitism, even fairly recently, despite there being like nine Jews, I think, in Japan. And, and so it was sort of like they had this fictive, it was like being really anti-Sith. You know, you would, you'd like, well, I know they're bad, uh, <laughs> and I'm going to get them and they're probably plotting to control the banks. It's just a weird sort of deracinated anti-Semitism in Japan, although probably still super unpleasant if you were a, a, a Jew visiting Japan at the time. Right. And certainly in other Asian countries that matrix gets applied to Chinese ethnicities who are living outside of China. Yeah. But that's, that's less conspiracy and more just suspicion of foreigners, which is, uh, you know, certainly not something you should have, but is, I, I don't think it rises to the sort of high level of conspiracy theory just to think, well, that neighborhood doesn't speak our language and they cook funny. I just don't like them. It's not a conspiracy right, so theory. There's, just there's regular xenophobia, yeah. which, you know, got a million people killed in Indonesia along with right. the, and, and I guess the other element here is that there is very often a, political motivation in stoking conspiracies. Yeah. And that's, and that's, uh, the, um, the Indonesia case and, and, uh, Rwanda, similarly that government operatives in the Indonesia case, they said they're all communists. Um, and certainly there was a lot of communists in Indonesia and they all got macheted just with the vast number of totally innocent people. Right. And during communists, the purge. uh, there were bona fide communists and then there were just opponents of the regime. And as far as right. And or just regime, people who, you know, you wanted their house. So you turned yeah. them in as this always happens. And in uh, Rwanda, it was not so much a, a, a conspiracy theory again is perhaps dignifying it, but was a case in which the Hutu government said, uh, the Tutsi who have all the nice stuff are going to, uh, massacre you in your beds. You'd better kill them. And again, that's not so much a conspiracy theory as just sort of stoking a grudge against right. your neighbor. The borderline in Germany in the, in the Hitler case is that yes, there had been centuries of very elaborate anti-Semitic conspiracy theory going on in Germany, uh, the, the blood libel and, um, you know, plotting to uh, subvert the crusades, you know, as far back as the 11th century. And then down into the, into the modern era with the building subways was a Jewish plot, for example, that was very big in central Europe that everyone was very worried. Uh, the Jews were out building subways so that they could blow up the cities uh, more effectively. And that is a, um, that, that's not the sort of thing you immediately think of as, as, as a, as an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, but there you go. Right. And, and the, the, the worry that things are going on underground and that there's, mm -hmm. uh, underground networks and tunnels is, right. uh, deeply metaphorical, uh, to the whole nature of conspiracy, right? That you've got, we've got this surface world and then below, uh, below us are, you know, the mole people or the Jewish mm -hmm. subway system or now the network of tunnels underneath the uh, different businesses that are part of the, the QAnon uh, conspiracy where people right. just... Or the, or the secret tunnels that the government dug out to hide aliens in or to move the black helicopters through or whatever. Right. A tunnel conspiracy is, is a very strong part of, uh, I think everybody's conspiracy theory. And it certainly is very loud in America. Because where's this thing that nobody can see happening? Oh, it's gotta right. be... 
in a tunnel. No one can see it happening. Right. I will say that American conspiracists seem very drawn to toxic metaphors. The notion of poisoning, uh, that plays off in the sort of crazy nervousness about food that American culture uh, encourages because it gives you in a way to sell you the same thing in another packet that says, you know, it's gluten free or whatever. Um, and, and so playing into toxophobia seems to be an American cultural trait. And I think that maybe comes down from the good old Puritans who literally said we're pure. We can't let impure stuff in. And so even to the extent that we have anti-Semitism in America, it was almost always aimed at foreign Jews, not at domestic Jews, because domestic Jews, we know them. They're nice Mr. Hirschbaum down the street who uh, owns the hardware store, but foreign Jews, they're trouble, and we got to get them out. And that was the form that American anti-Semitism has always taken, is hatred of foreign Jews, as opposed to necessarily hatred of literally all Jews. Obviously, now that our anti-Semites are importing inferior anti-Semitism from overseas, now you have the sort of straight-up Idaho Nazi type guy who doesn't even like Mr. Hirschbaum. But historically in America, that uh, all of our conspiracies tended to be someone is poisoning us. Someone is bringing a vile poison, whether it's the poison of the Illuminati or the poison of Catholicism or the poison of, of filthy uh, being Chinese into us. And, and there's a, a, a plot to do that and we have to stop them. And that notion of being poisoned seems to be part of an American characteristic and American syndrome of conspiracy theory. Obviously, again, the fear of poison is a universal human fear, right. just like the worry about stuff happening underground is a universal fear. But I think that in America, we sort of have brought it to a, a, a commercially perfected high pitch in a way that other countries, I think if you're in Russia and you basically assume everything you eat is poisoned already, you don't really care so much. You're, you're just right. more concerned. The, the fear there is more of being poisoned on a metaphorical level, right? The right. Fear is a, yeah. But, but uh, even then, it, it's, it's not so, it, it, it doesn't use that language. It, it uses a little of the plague language, but the Russians are very, it's very results oriented. It's not so much poisoning. It's that they're going to take over the machinery of the security state or they're going to cripple the country overseas somehow and that that's what they're up to. And while again, because the global communications network has spread really effective memes from country to country. And so though in the Western world, uh, which in this case includes Russia uh, and Japan, uh, the conspiracy sort of or language is growing closer and closer. We're losing conspiracy dialects, I guess I want to say. Right. And, and that's the, the bizarre irony that conspiracy theory is globalizing and the new code word that is used in all of these conspiracy theories is beware the globalists. Beware the globalists. They want to take our national conspiracy theories away and replace them with worse ones. Right. It's like, oh, wait, except we're doing that. Oh, well, right. Yeah, oh, but they're still bad. It. Why? Why? I mean, the, the, the notion of mirroring, I think, is, is, is fairly uh, universal. Again, it's, it's the, you know, the, uh, what do I fear is being done to me? Therefore, I have to do it now. Uh, or what do I fear that I might do if you want to be Freudian about it? You know, I, that's how I'm projecting that my, the bad guys are doing. I don't think you necessarily have to posit a subconscious. That's literally the creative act that, that conspiracy theory is, is you imagine bad things. And obviously you're only going to imagine ones you can conceive of. That's literally how imagination works. Uh, another thing that I think, uh, British conspiracy theories by and large tend to have a, it's, it's not our poison, uh, metaphor, our toxin metaphor, but there's 
a sort of, it's a little bit, it seems a little stereotypical to say it, but in my experience, a lot of British conspiracy, and it's not as common as American tox- toxophobia, but a lot of British conspiracies are very much sort of ties of blood. Like if you can figure out who everyone is related to, then you can figure out what's actually going on. Things are not in their correct place and people are not in their correct place. That is the worst disorder. Right. And, 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 but if you could figure out that this guy was actually this guy's, you know, cousin-in-law by a third marriage, then you could make sense of it. And that may just be because that was social survival for every literate Britain for 400 years. And that's how you figured out, you know, who got to eat soup before you. So it also must apply to who is part of uh, the uh, conspiracy to cover up um, the reptoids or whatever. Right. That there well, seems and that's to be very some... interesting that the, you know, the original reptoid thing uh, comes out, out of the UK because that's, uh, the sense that there are, there are impersonators, that there are right. people who are, are pretending, uh, to their positions of authority, but in fact are fake. And that, yeah. of course, is, uh, you know, uh, highly imprinted with the, with the class structure that, and they, uh, and they do like doubles and swaps in their, in their conspiracy theories. They're the, uh, they're the ground zero for the, um, uh, second Albert Speer conspiracy or not second Albert Speer, the second Rudolf Hess conspiracy, for example, that he was swapped out with a double. Um, that's, uh, that's something that the, the British conspiracy theorists just can't get enough of. I mean, everyone loves Nazis as the topic of a conspiracy theory. Uh, again, I think that's just because Nazis sell. I don't think it much matters. The British are a little more obsessed with it because it's the same as when they beat Germany in the World Cup and won't shut up about it. I think they have that same sort of proprietary feeling about World War II. And so it becomes part of the national character. And I think if you're a, a strongly, uh, conspiratorial Britain, by and large, you are, uh, uh, super fond of, of your image of England, and that includes, uh, beating the Nazis. So even if you're a very right-wing British conspiracy theorist, your conspiracy has to sort of go three sides around the barn, um, uh, to avoid just straight out saying, you know, Nazis rule, let's, Im- let's have fascism. It's much more of a sort of, well, back in the day when we didn't have all these foreigners, we were beating the Nazis and wasn't that great. And it's like, you realize the irony of what you're saying. And of course they never do because realizing irony is how you stop being a conspiracy theorist right. uh, for starters. So our, our, our pal Northrop Fry uh, had, yeah. had a term that the demonic parody, and this is a big part of literature and that there was something uh, that was important to a, a cultural or a society. And then the demonic parody takes that and, and turns it on its head. So uh, in a way we're looking at demonic parodies of different national structures or uh, national anxieties. So uh, the French uh, have a belief in uh, bureaucracy and procedure, so their conspiracy has to be a complicated underground bureaucracy. The uh, British uh, have a class structure imprinted on them, so there must be a secret class structure of uh, reptilian evildoers behind uh, the apparent one. The uh, uh, America believes itself to be new and fresh and uh, untrammeled by uh, Europe. And so foreign influences coming in and, and uh, getting stuff in the streams is, is all a big problem. And this leads me thinking, is there a Canadian conspiracy theory? And, uh, you know, I, maybe there's just not enough of this, but yeah. you know, our, our national fear supposedly, according to Margaret Atwood is, is of freezing to death outside, right? Yeah. yeah the wilderness, the encroaching wilderness <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, our great, uh, literary theme is survival. And I guess, uh, you know, if we had a conspiracy theory, it would be that there's 
somebody out in the woods who's out organizing things and, and doing stuff. And yeah, you would uh, have sort of a advanced version of the militia paranoia that we had in America in the nineties when everybody who went and played paintball was part of some giant Aryan nations conspiracy to bring down the government. Right. But we'd have to do it without a, a, a heavily militarized culture. Right. Uh, so I think that your conspiracy theories, like, you know, your music and your television and your movies and everything else, unless Canada is going to get into the business of subsidizing Canadian content conspiracy theory, you're just going to be consuming American conspiracy theory. Uh, well, I guess I'll have to get a grant proposal underway for that. And there uh, you go. And on that note, it's time for us to uh, head out of this podcast uh, for yet another week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Conspire to keep this show alive alongside such Patreon backers as... Ryan Lassiter. Chris McLaren. Rich Spadauer. Aaron Sapp. And Anton Kulikov. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Wear such shirts as, okay, okay, I carved the yellow sign into one lousy potato. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time on Once Again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>